there's this craving i think that's that's emerged for an experience of pleasure or happiness and i, I see this a lot in just kind of like the well-being culture of instagram and social media and podcasts right there's all this stuff about like being happy and living a more optimized life and you know like having better focus and all these different things and i i think to a certain degree we're also experiencing this treadmill in the in the realm of wellness culture as well where it's just like many of us have this baked in desire to achieve you know a higher level of fitness or mental fitness or focus and it never really arrives Hey there, I'm Renee, a self-proclaimed shopaholic turned minimalist. In just three years, my family and I downsized our house, paid off debt, and I learned to make passive income online so I could work anytime, anywhere. We did all of this in pursuit of a life of more freedom, flexibility, and fun. And the crazy part is, the more I detached from my stuff, the more I was able to let go of pesky habits like people-pleasing, saying yes to everyone, and being who I thought I was supposed to be rather than showing up authentically as who I am. That's why I want you to see the Unstuffed podcast not as a place for all things decluttering and organizing, but rather as a place where together we can unload it all. From donating those pants that no longer fit to bidding adieu to those relationships that have run their course, I want you to see our time together as a time where you can unwind, let go, come as you are, and there is no need to apologize for the mess. So let's shed some layers, drop some dead weight, and start living a little less stuffed. Welcome to the Unstuffed Podcast. It's me, Renee. Welcome back to the Unstuffed Podcast. Have you ever done that thing where you went on a walk and you picked your phone out of your pocket and it said that you were locked out for a minute or five because while you were walking, you were accidentally somehow pushing the buttons of your passcode to get into your phone. Well, this happened to me first thing in the morning. I am someone who sleeps with my phone off to the side, face down, at least a good three or four feet away from my bed. And when my alarm went off at 6 a.m., My phone told me that I had tried too many passcodes and was locked out for three hours. Now, I think I do a pretty good job of managing my screen time, considering that most of my job is right in front of a screen. But this sent me into a mild panic slash annoyance. And even though I told myself, oh, it's okay, I can take a walk, I'll go to the gym, I realized I listen to podcasts when I walk. I listen to music at the gym. And what about my fitness app? I felt totally helpless at the idea that I could not access my phone for three hours. Thankfully, I could go onto my laptop and send messages to my husband and let him know just in case of an emergency that he wasn't able to contact me through my phone. But the panic was real and it's perfectly aligned with today's episode where I got to sit down with author Nate Klemp, who is sharing all of the pieces and parts from his new book, Open. I have been reading this book, you guys. I feel so lucky I've gotten a sneak peek, but the book is coming out and you are going to want to listen in to the experiments that he's done on openness escaping screen time, and embracing the enemy, which is probably my favorite topic that we've covered. Anyway, if you are someone who has ever had a tough time putting down your phone, this is an episode you're definitely going to want to listen in on. Hi, Nate. Hey, Renee. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being on. Uh, I'm excited to dive in today. I know the work that you're doing is really something I've kind of been doing myself. So do you want to kind of give an intro to my listeners and let them know who you are, what you do and how you got here? Yeah. Well, it's been a journey like you. We've definitely had my, my journey to getting here. The short story is 
I used to be a political philosophy professor. So I got a PhD, decided I was going to learn how to live the good life and ask the big questions in philosophy. And it turned out my life actually got far worse rather than better through that process. And so about 15 years ago, I left that career and got really interested in what I would call practices or technologies of the mind, like learning about things like mindfulness and meditation and yoga and all these different tools we have for actually changing the inner landscape of the mind. So that's what I've been up to for the last 15 or so years is mostly writing about mindfulness and about how we manage our minds in this increasingly chaotic and crazy world. And most recently, I have a book coming out in February called Open, Living with an Expansive Mind in a Distracted World, which is really all about how can we shift from our ordinary response of closing down, checking out, being addicted to our screens, being addicted to political outrage, and instead turn toward life and and open up a little bit more. Wow. Yeah, that sounds very necessary, very needed these (laughs) days. Uh, that's something I talk a lot about, you know, just, um, like I talk a lot about how I used to struggle with shopping addiction and that was just my quick turn to, it was just a quick fix to kind of tune out from all of the stuff that I was, you know, kind of running. I didn't want to sit and face any of the internal thoughts or any of the internal problems. Is that kind of what your book is about or? Yeah, I think that At their core, well, shopping addiction is really similar to something like screen addiction. They're both behavioral addictions, so they're not about a substance. It's more about a behavior, so similar to gambling or some of these other things that that can easily hook us. And I, I think what I find really interesting about all of these addictions is that, or compulsions, there's usually like an underlying emotional experience that we're having that we don't want to face or experience or be with. And so an easy way out for all of us is to go on Instagram or to like go on Amazon and start buying a bunch of stuff you don't need or uh, any number of strategies. But, But at their core, I think that's one of the really fascinating things is like this this behavior of closing to discomfort. And so one way that I love to explore of, like how we start to uproot some of these addictions or compulsions is, well, what if we were to move toward those uncomfortable feelings or mind states or thoughts and just be with them and see what happens then? Because maybe then there's nowhere we, we need to go. Like maybe that's all we need to do. That's, that's kind of what I've been exploring and, and interested in for quite a while now. I, I love that because I think I've always kind of, gravitated that way myself like Mm. maybe not always obviously there's been times where I wasn't great at it but I kind of felt like well if I better understand where these thoughts are coming from then I can clear through them then I can work through this but I know so many friends and family are like nope I'm good to just run the opposite direction yeah Uh, so I guess my thought or my question for you is like how do you find the words to encourage people to start embracing those, you know, more negative feelings or the things they don't want to think about. Um, how do, so how do you even start mindfulness if it's something you're kind of afraid of being in your mind? Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting, complicated question. Uh, one thing I think a lot about is there's this concept of the pain-pleasure balance. So it turns out that our brain's are constantly trying to balance the experience of pain and pleasure. So too much pleasure leads to pain sometimes. Sometimes pain can lead to pleasure. Like you go on a really hard run, that's painful, but it can lead to pleasure. So what's what's really interesting about our predicament is that for many of us, there's this shortcut we have to pleasure. Maybe that's shopping or maybe that's going on Facebook or maybe that's reading the news but it's like a really easy way to get to pleasure. And if we keep like riding that loop again and again and again, the pleasure starts to go away and it's replaced by pain at a certain point, which I'm sure you you know from your own issues with shopping. I know this from my issues with screens that I, I've been dealing with or, or exploring that 
that, you know, you ride that pleasure train far enough and it, it pretty quickly starts to turn into something quite painful. So, so there's something interesting then I think about, well, what if we were to experience some of these moments of discomfort more intentionally? It's not pleasurable in the, in the moment, but it can lead to a much more pleasurable, expansive experience of life. But, but that's what I think makes this so complicated. The on-ramp isn't as easy or as fun or as like pleasurable. So it, it's, it's harder to kind of get that project off the ground of, of being a little bit more mindful and that sort of thing. Yeah, you're so right. And that makes so much sense. You know, like you said, it's like, I, I do. I remember getting to that point where I had just come home and I had spent too much again. And it was like, I'm not happy at all. Like it didn't work this time. Right. You know, it was like the stop. Yeah. It stopped giving the payoff. And to speak to your, you, you know, you're talking about screen time. I was just talking about this not too long ago that I for real remember a time scrolling on Facebook and I like threw my phone out of my hand because I could mm. feel my like levels of like joy. Like I just was feeling worse and worse with every single scroll, but it's like, it's an addictive thing. You just can't stop. Right. Well, I was curious, Renee, for you, because shopping addiction sounds like it was a big thing in your past. What were, what was like the key turning point for you when you were able to just sort of like shut down that habit and create an alternative route in your, in your mind and your brain and your life? And that's what it's so different from everyone else I hear. Cause I, I talk a lot on minimalism and decluttering because it kind of went mm-hmm. hand in hand, but it was actually thanks to probably people like you, like in mindfulness books, I started reading, mm-hmm. I accidentally found like the self-help section of the library. And it was talking about, you know, the bigger things we can do with our lives and what we're capable of. And I just had this overwhelming feeling like I had just been filling my life with stuff that really wasn't filling me up. Like it wasn't working. Like you said, you know, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't bringing me pleasure anymore. I just kind of felt stuck and icky and I just knew it wasn't working. So I thought, well, maybe if I get rid of some of my stuff and I just stopped, I went cold turkey shopping. Like I just was like, I don't it's not working. It's not working. I need to figure out what does. And I figured I'd rather try to figure out a different route than just stay stuck where I was. Cause I knew that for sure wasn't leading me yeah. anywhere. Yeah. I love that story. Well, and it's, it's so amazing that you were able to see that, but then have the will and the discipline to stay with that commitment. That's, it's really cool. Right. And that's, I, I know a lot of people don't, you know, have that same kind of mind, you know, it's one of those things that was just a click in my my mind. Um, So I guess, you know, for people who have the resistance or don't have the click, what do you, what do you do? (laughs) Well, I have experimented with something really kind of radical here that I might not recommend for shopping addiction. Actually, I definitely wouldn't recommend it for shopping addiction, but for screen addiction, it was really interesting. And that is, you know, for anybody who's experienced this, there's this like shaming that happens internally and all of this resistance and all of these control strategies of like, I'm going to try to limit my screen time. And, but now I'm on Instagram and I feel bad about myself. And so there's a lot of like pushing away of the object of desire or craving. So one of the things I did for my most recent book is I thought to myself, well, what would happen if we flip this strategy on its head? And if for three days, I just continuously binged on screens. So it's kind of like, you know, the old school parenting thing where you catch your kids smoking and you have them smoke the whole pack or like three packs. And then they never smoke again because it's just so disgusting at a certain point. So I wanted to see if I could do that with my screens. And the reason I wouldn't advocate this for shopping is that you can yeah. spend every last cent doing Major this. Major problems. Don't, don't do this. Don't do this with shopping. But with screens, what was really interesting is, I mean, first of all, it destroyed my sleep. I woke up every morning at 2.50, just like, boom, up, like I had had a shot of espresso. I had all sorts of like headaches and weird things from just like watching my screens all the time. But the most interesting thing is I got to the end of this experiment. I woke up the day after. And usually when I wake up, that's the time where I go grab my phone and go to the bathroom like most of us these days. But the morning after this experiment, that desire just like wasn't there. 
it just disappeared. And I realized that the reason we're so addicted to screens and distraction is they give us this experience of novelty. You know, like you check your text messages and there's a new one or your email, there's a new one or like the newsfeed or, or social media, there's something new. And by going all the way for days at a time with my phone, I realized I had destroyed its superpower. It could no, like I, I saw everything there was to see. So, so that was kind of an interesting moment where I realized, okay, well, that's an interesting alternative strategy that we could use. But also it helped me understand the nature of these cravings themselves that, that in many ways, what we're looking for is just like something new. And I think that's probably, do you think that's true of shopping addiction? That there's, it's like, I want this new thing. Yeah. And then you get oh, it and you're like, oh, that's just a shirt. And then you want the new shirt or like the new dress or whatever. Like, is that how it works with shopping? Oh, totally. And then it's just, you're not, it's, it's all, it's never ending. It's always something. You know, you think it's going to be like the end all be all. I talk a lot about how I did it with home decor. I'd be like, oh, I just need these three things. And then I'm going to feel so happy and content with my space. It's going to be perfect. But then I'd get those three things. I'm like, you know what would really be a blanket would be nice too. And then I like need one more thing. It was just never ending. And that gets so exhausting. Like, I think I burnt myself out like you did. Like I got to the point where it was (laughs) too much, you know? Well, have you heard about these uh, studies in psychology about the hedonic treadmill? I don't so, know. So basically, they they did all this research on people who won the lottery, you know, and like so these are people who didn't have much money. They won ten million dollars, twenty million dollars. So all of a sudden, they're rich, and their happiness level goes way up for like three months, and then after six months, it goes right back to exactly the way it was before, and and what's I mean, that's an extreme case, but I think it's a great representation of a lot of what happens to us in life that, you know, we just have this idea that like, oh, if I could just get this house or like this car, or if I could afford that really fancy outfit or whatever it is, then I'll be happy. We get the thing, we're happy for maybe two weeks, three weeks, a month, maybe a couple months. And then we totally habituate to that new state and our desires expand and there's some new thing. So, so I think that recognition is so essential for us just to be like, wait a minute, this is not making me happy. Right. And that's what I kind of think, um, you know, they talk about, like, I, I just read the, cause Matthew Perry, the actor passed away last yes, month. Right. Um, and my mom gave me his book. And so I read his book and he talks a lot on that where he very openly about, wanting the next thing, wanting that fame. He craved fame. He craved the stuff and he just was never satisfied. Like it worked for a while, obviously like riding the friends high when you're super famous and everything's going great, but then there's just that crash. Um, and I think I got to that point where I was like, I need to find something that's actually going to, you know, going to be long-term satisfying. I'm going to actually be happy. Like, I feel like more internal goals, like emotional goals, you know, goals for my soul, my spirit, my mind, that kind of thing versus the stuff I can have or the the things I can buy. I would say that it's about the stuff we have. I love that point. But it's also about there's this craving, I think, that's that's emerged for an experience of pleasure or happiness. And I, I see this a lot in just kind of like the well-being culture of Instagram and social media and podcasts, right? There's all this stuff about like being happy and living a more optimized life and, you know, like having better focus and all these different things. And I, I think to a certain degree, we're also experiencing this treadmill in the in the realm of wellness culture as well, where it's just like, many of us have this baked in desire to achieve, you know, a higher level of fitness or mental fitness or focus. And it never really arrives is what I've found. You know, I've been chasing after this mirage for years and years doing yoga and meditation and all these different things. And they're amazing practices. But when I'm doing it from that, that place of striving of like, oh, I'm going to get to this state where I wake up every day and I feel amazing. And I've got like, pleasure just radiating through my body. It's like a mildly orgasmic experience of life every day. Then I will have made it. 
And I'm starting to get to the point where I realize, like, I don't think that's true. I don't think anybody experiences that. And I think we ought to just give up on that goal and just realize Uh, life can be hard sometimes, you know, and that's fine. Yeah, no, that's hilarious because um, it's so funny. I feel like every time I, uh, I like, I love being able to get new guests on because so often I feel like you're speaking to everything that's currently going through my mind. You know what I mean? It's just perfect. I've been saying that for probably the last few years. Uh, or I just say, I just need to stop trying. I just need to stop trying when I give up <laughs> things work so much better, but truly, mm. um, because I did that probably right along when I started decluttering and stopped shopping, I saw what you're saying where I was meditating all of the time. And, but I always ask if I talk to someone in the wellness space, you know, do you feel like sometimes it's just one more thing we add to like our to-do list? Like, oh, and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to focus and I'm going to be so great. And I'm going to do my yoga, but it's just adding to the stress of like one more thing we have to do. And one more thing we're going to do. And one more thing we're going to be great at. And one more thing we're going to accomplish Mm -hmm. when maybe the whole goal is to, yeah, just kind of let it all go. (laughs) I think letting go is to me the most profound practice, but also it's the one I understand the least because I don't really even think there is anything to understand, you know, unlike these practices that are based on we're going to start at point A and go to point B and you're in control and you're going to do it through your discipline and your will. Those all make sense to me, but, but a practice like letting go is so paradoxical. I mean, this idea that, that we're just totally okay. You know, right now we're having this conversation. Everything is fine and and we don't need anything more than this. Like this is, this is good. I, I mean, it just, it doesn't even make sense to me at a certain point, but, but I've also, I think we've all had this experience of trying to control something in our life and, and whatever we might do to control it. Maybe we take the supplements or we like do the, the practices or work really hard on, on getting rid of it in some way. And it never goes away for me. Like I have chronic tinnitus in my left ear. I've had it for 15 years and I spent like over a decade just like trying to get rid of it. You know, like I got to just like get the, if I do enough yoga, if I meditate hard enough, I'm going to get rid of this thing. And it never went away. And I started to realize that this ringing in my ear was actually like my most profound spiritual teacher in a way, because I got to a certain point and that's actually what led me to write my most recent book. I got to a certain point where I realized this is never going away. And so I can either fight against this thing or I can just allow it to be as it is and see if I can become friends with it as it is. And that, that was one of those moments in my life where it, it just felt like, wow, that's, a, that's such a more skillful strategy and so much easier to just like allow it to be versus fighting against it, spending all this money, trying to get rid of it. So yeah, I, I agree with you hundred percent about the power of, of just letting go. Oh, totally. I love that. Um, cause you're so right. It, it's something I think we, we fight against so much. Um, yeah, rather than just embracing it, you know, I, I think there are times, you know, maybe where we do have to take action. Like if I'm sick and throwing up, I'm probably not just like, whatever, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm yeah, going to embrace exactly. it, you know? But finding that balance has been such a tough thing. And even though the concept of like letting go sounds so great and so easy, it's not easy. It's really quite difficult. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, so there's a trap. I like to say there's a trap to every idea or practice. And the trap to letting go is this idea of like, well, now I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to like let go and see what happens. And I'm going to like stop making money and see how long it takes for me to get evicted or kicked out of my house or the bank's going to foreclose me or whatever. That That's a trap. And I don't think anybody wants to go there. So I, I think it's kind of like finding that balance where, yeah, there are moments where you get to the edge of what you can control and letting go is super powerful. And there are a lot of moments where, hey, my my daughter needs to be picked up at 3.20 this afternoon. I'm going to control my day and my schedule such that I can be there. <laughs> you know, like, right. like that is not skillful for me to be like, you know what? 
we'll just, I'm just going to like go, I'm sure she'll find a way home. There's probably some other parent there who she could like talk to and yeah, she'll find her way home somehow. I'm just going <laughs> to let go on that one. So, I mean, that's, a par- that's a parenting strategy. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's, that's not the kind of parent I want to be, but, but yeah, so I think it's like this weird paradoxical dance where yes, we want to be in control sometimes, but then we also want to see when we've reached the limit of what we can control. You know, like, I'm not very good at controlling the the flow of of geopolitical events and who our next president's going to be. You know, there's certain things I could do potentially, but like, that's one where I probably need to let go a little bit. After our family downsized our house, we started working to pay off debt and build an actual savings. Because for decades, I would transfer $100 to our savings account, but then I would end up transferring it right back to our checking when we had overspent. So when we downsized, I decided to get serious about saving money for things like emergencies and for fun things like travel. The first thing I did was open a high-yield savings account that was separate from our current checking account. That way, it wouldn't be as easy for me to just pull money out whenever I felt like I needed it, and I knew it would force me to take my spending and my saving a lot more seriously. So if you are in a similar boat and are hoping to up your game when it comes to saving money, one of the absolute best accounts to get started is called Savings Connect. This is a savings account that pays close to 5% when you set an automatic savings deposit of just $100 per month. This is 11 times the national average, which means if you use a current savings account that's attached to your checking, there's a good chance you are not making nearly enough money. So if you're at a place in life where you're committed to changing your financial future and you actually want to start getting some money in the bank, you can get started with a Savings Connect account for as little as $100. Just head to reneebenis.com forward slash save to learn more. And I will fill you in on all of the details. That's reneebenis.com forward slash save to learn more. Right. That's a, I think uh, the control what you can and kind of let go what you can't. So I guess when you were working, um, what do you call your ear? What? Oh, tinnitus, uh, just ringing in the ear. Yeah. Okay, so I think maybe it's a Minnesota thing because I have a few friends and a family, a few friends or family friends who have that. Yeah. I think they call it tinnitus. tinnitus. No, <laughs> so, no. It, actually, a lot of people, they, they're both correct. Okay, from, okay. From what I've gathered through, yeah. They're both All correct. right, I just had to specify. I'm like, maybe it's just our yeah. Minnesota way of seeing Minnesota, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, did you, what took it, what was it for you where you got to that point where, Cause it's good to maybe see like what you can control. If there's ways you can maybe yeah. mild it or make it less awful. But how'd you get to that point where you're like this? I'm just fighting too hard. I'm trying too hard to stop. You know? Yeah. Was there I like can, a turning point for you? Yeah. I can tell you exactly. I was lying on the floor of a hotel room in Rollins, Wyoming. My wife was sick. She had bronchitis. My daughter was like, why are we doing a road trip? We were driving across the country. And for whatever reason, maybe it was the noise in the car. I don't know, but it was the the loudest and the most destabilizing experience of that earring that I had ever had to that point. And not only that, it had come on the heels of a month or two before me being like, you know what, I'm going to figure this out. Me just being like, I'm going to, I'm going to put my time and energy toward this. I'm going to see a new doctor. I'm going to do this. Ba-da-da. So I was doing all these things and it was actually getting worse. And that was kind of the breaking point. And the the way it relates to my most recent project around opening is I really got to the point there where I felt just despair, I guess the best way to describe it, hopeless. But in that moment, I, I thought to myself, well, what if I were to just open to this sound and allow it to be and I, I just started playing with that experience. And, and it's not that I was able to stay in that state forever. I was, you know, maybe it was 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And, and then I went back to my old habits. But, but I saw something there that, that like the resistance changed, the amount of suffering I was experiencing changed. And so that really led me on this journey of thinking, well, how can we open up more to those kinds of moments? And it's a tricky question because like 
that there aren't obvious answers to that question in our culture. So, so really I started exploring just different experiences and experiments and different, different ways to kind of open to things that are uncomfortable or chaotic or, or crazy or, or, you know, make us close down and withdraw. Yeah. I'm curious some of the things that you found, because I know exactly what you're talking about. I can think of so many examples in my life where I felt like the right thing to do was like, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to go hard. I'm going to, you know, mm-hmm. give this my, yeah, give it my all, do my best. Put every ounce of effort I have toward this thing. Cause I think we get that message a lot that that's yeah. what works and everything would just work way, way worse. So yeah. what are the things that you found that kind of go against that? Yeah. Well, so I, I've been exploring a number of different practices. Um, one is what I call opening to the enemy which is more of a political practice because I, I think a lot of the ways in which we're closing now, I mean, it's, it's both to our own minds, but to other people who don't believe what we believe. And so as a bolder, left-leaning gun control advocate, I got my concealed carry permit with the NRA and I, I spent a, a day in rural Colorado shooting guns, learning about guns. And it was amazing. Like, so that was like, its own little amazing thing, realizing there is no enemy here. I also spent about two years exploring psychedelic assisted therapy as a, I mean, this is just one of the more interesting new approaches to opening the mind, especially around things like trauma. So I had experienced flight anxiety for about 20 years. When I would get on an airplane, I'd feel pretty significant fear. And, And so this was another interesting experience or experiment for me was going into these states where I had a therapist who was guiding me and I was able to just completely re-experience this traumatic event. And and really that was another one of these experiences that just completely opened up the space that I was feeling in my mind. And then one other one just to mention these and we can we can drill into any of these if you want. But I, I'm really fascinated by this idea of of taking meditation out of these kind of protected, serene settings. You know, we think about like, go to the mountain retreat center or like put on your noise canceling headphones. Um, But I find it really fascinating to just kind of like bring meditation to the chaos of the world. So one of the things I did was I, I spent a day doing a meditation retreat at my local Costco. I just like meditated on the outdoor furniture chairs and in the pharmacy department and like walked through the aisles while I was doing walking meditation and went to my local ER waiting room, did the same thing. That was a place that usually freaks me out. But again, it was like this really cool experience of realizing that these places that are stressful or chaotic or even uh, terrifying, like there's a way to, to sort of open ourselves more up to those experiences. So I'll stop there. <laughs> That's kind of just a, a little swath of what I was exploring here. No, I love that though. Are these all in your new book? Yes. Because yes. I would love to in depth go and, and see what you uncovered. And I love that. So I have like a bajillion questions now, of course, because okay. I'm so interested <laughs> in all of those. But I think I kind of understand what you mean about the Costco or the ER place. I feel like it's a habit that I've, or like a practice I've worked on unintentionally, just to kind of calm my nervous system where it's just like working to breathe my way through. And I can for real feel the internal shift in my body happen in like maybe potential high anxiety cases where I work to keep my calm. And I largely did that for my children. It was like, I need to be the calm for everybody, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, But explain to me what, walking meditation <laughs> looks like because i think that goes against what any of us probably imagine when we think of like the yeah. meditation pose how do you kind of practice it as you're just going through costco yeah well and there's another distinction that i think would be useful here which is what i was just describing is is like a more formal practice of street meditation or street opening where you set aside a day and you go to costco or maybe it's an hour and for the purpose of meditating I am realistic here. I know that none of your listeners are probably going to do that. But 
What they might be interested in doing is while you're already at Costco or while you're standing in the 15-minute the line at Walmart or wherever you shop, maybe using that as an opportunity to practice just becoming a little bit more present and aware in the, in the moment. Um, because I think what we tend to do in those moments is pull out our phone, distract ourselves, we're stressed, we don't really want to feel it, we don't want to be where we actually are. So walking meditation, the basic idea is you can sit and meditate on, often we're using the sensations in the breath, or we're just opening our awareness to take in everything that's happening. Those are classic sitting meditation practices. But you really can also do that while walking. And my favorite way to do this, particularly in street meditation, when you're in Costco or wherever you happen to be in airport, uh, if you have the time and the space, there's this practice called aimless wandering, where the idea is that you just kind of wander and let your intuition tell you where to go. So doing this in Costco is just totally nuts because usually you're there and you have an agenda. I got to go to the meat aisle and now I got to get my chips and whatever, right? But this would be just kind of like allowing yourself to wander around wherever your intuition tells you to go. And so, you know, usually you do this like in a mountain meadow or like, you know, someplace in nature, but it's kind of cool to do this in our crazy, chaotic, urban, modern world. And you start to re-experience where you are totally differently. Like I left Costco thinking this place is like a work of art. This is the most, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. Like this is just, you know, this is amazing. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but, but you know, you, you sit there and you just start to see things you don't ordinarily see. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. All I can think is like, I hate when my husband wanders Costco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm very much the agenda person. So, so um, he's probably practicing street meditation, you know? Sure. <laughs> so one of these times you should just join him. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I mean, uh, that would be a practice in patience and tolerance, maybe. Yeah, from... exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I do know what you mean. Um, I'm just working on being a little bit more mindful in my life over the last few years where I think, uh, I think sometimes I think people must think I'm like high or something. Cause I really start to enjoy, like you said, Costco is a work of art. I don't think anyone's ever thought that before, but I, I can <laughs> see what you mean. Like I, I've, I've had those moments where you just begin to appreciate our world on a deeper, deeper level or certain experiences or certain places. Um, and then that kind of goes back. Like when you were saying, you know, we think we're going to wake up with this idea. We're always happy. We're always in a great positive mood. Yeah. Uh, And that's not necessarily true, but I think the more you kind of like embrace those moments, embrace even chaotic situations or um, negative things, because you've embraced it, even if it's a bad experience or even if it's anxiety inducing, you kind of create a little bit, not necessarily like super happy, Mm. but a more mellowed state. Am I, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. The more I've embraced the bad experiences in my life, the more I accept the negative things and the less I resist against them, it kind of creates more just like a, a calm flow where I'm not maybe super spiked, happy, like riding a dopamine high, but am more content to just be in whatever circumstance I find myself in. Well, the other thing I think about with your work is it seems like so much of it is about intentionality. Like, I think for me and for many people I know, if we just ride our ordinary habits, it's almost like we're just living in this very mechanistic, automatic, trance-like state where we're doing things, but we're not really even thinking about why we're doing them, right? So when I was listening to your first podcast episode and you were talking about like your room and how you just wanted to fill it with stuff, you know, like... Like that seems to me to be an example of just like living without a whole lot of intentionality where it's just like these hardwired habits are just totally running the show. And so what I love about what you're up to is just like, hey, what if we take a step back and and ask the question, like, is this what I truly want? 
Or is there some other path that I want to go down? And I think for, for so many of us, like we never even ask that question. So I think it's cool just that you're providing a forum for people to ask that question. And then there are all sorts of tactics and strategies about like, if you say yes to that question, well, now what do you do? But just even having the question itself posed, I think is a, is a revelation for a lot of people. Well, thanks. And that's, yeah, you know, I, I think you're right. It's so easy to get caught up in just the processes, just what we do without a- actually asking ourselves why. Um, and I want to go back again, if I can, yeah, because totally. uh, this is something else I want to touch on because you mentioned our different political views. I was just talking about this with my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law the other day, uh, because I said, my mother-in-law said, I never bring up politics and I never bring up religion. Mm. And I said, I would love to bring up politics and religion if I knew Mm. I was in a space where people would speak about it without the judgments that we are so, that we see so often. People are so quick to, you know, hear one tidbit about you and assume that you are this type of person and you're going to fit in this type of political mold. Uh, And I just... That make that exhausts me. It makes me so tired because I think we're trying to put one another in boxes. So I love that you you are for more gun control, but you went and yeah, played I, guns. <laughs> Maybe not played yeah, guns, but no, I I had never even shot a gun or really like had any interaction with you know people who were very into guns. And it was it was a really cool experience. Like one story from that that adventure, I decided to wear my Denver Broncos hat. I live here in Colorado thinking like, oh, well, everybody's a Bronco fan, right? Like that we can find common ground there. So I, I get to this place. It's this warehouse full of semi-automatic weapons and, you know, that meet my instructor and one of the other students comes in with a Kansas City Chiefs jacket. And I was like, oh, I don't know that we can be friends because, you know, I'm a Bronco fan. You're a Chiefs fan. They're division rivals. Trying to make a joke. Her husband's like, oh, you don't need to worry about that at all we don't watch the NFL, not after the kneeling that happened five years ago. And I'm like, the kneeling? Oh, the Black Lives Matter thing. My instructor, who is a a former police officer, sheriff, prison guard in Iraq, he's like, yeah, you know, I haven't watched the NFL in five years after what they did with the, the kneeling. And so I had this moment of just total shock, like, wait a minute, we can't even agree on the Denver Broncos on a modern gladiator sport? And so then somebody asked me, well, you know, they were talking about politics off to the side and they asked me, well, what side are you on? And I had this moment of like, oh my God, how do I answer that question? So basically I said, you know, I- I'm on the side of being open. And that's, that's true. That's, that's why I was there. Just listening to, to all points of view. And it was crazy because everybody in that moment, like the whole energy shifted and they were like, that's exactly what we need more of. We totally agree. Like we need to talk to each other. How are we not doing this? And so I realized in that moment that there is a desire to actually connect and have conversation on both sides. It's just a matter of changing the way we have this conversation. So it's not through all of these like algorithmic media things like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter or X or whatever it's called now, but like actually being face-to-face. So yeah, so it was a wild experience. And as I said before, what I really got out of it was realizing, you know, I became pretty good friends with some of the people there and and realizing there is no difference fundamentally between us. These are good people doing their best in the world. And yet the way we see the world now mediated through all the screens we watch, it, it, it feels like they're the enemy. Yeah. So how do screens play a role in kind of egging that, you know, these differences on these rivalries between different sides of different yeah. issues? Well, I think we all know the way social media works, that things that are more provocative, controversial, get more attention, more clicks, more comments, more likes. So like the, the algorithms themselves are built around incentivizing outrage, which I think is a big problem. I think, you know, like, the, the way in which we consume news, it also there, there are incentives running there where there are some networks that are incentivized to be super far right, some that are incentivized to be super far left. And the further they go, the more viewers they get. And, and so I, I think it's really unfortunate. But my hope is that 
if enough people start to think like, what would happen if I really just listened to the other side, to my neighbor, to my uncle, to my friend, to my kid even sometimes, like maybe there is space for us to, to shift this underlying culture of polarization. Because it, it is crazy. There's this study that came up as I was researching for this book. Uh, it's called Lethal Mass Partisanship, showing that 20% of Democrats and Republicans in America believe that the other side lacks the traits to be considered fully human, that they behave like animals. And similar, 20% of Republicans and Democrats think that we would be better off if large numbers of the other party just died. That's 20% of our country. So, so, so this is kind of like a crisis, I think. And, oh, and I think yeah. as individuals, if we can take, take steps to sort of break out of this, this, this cycle of political outrage, it's a, it could be a really powerful thing. Yeah, that's so disheartening. <laughs> it's really uh, sad. It's really it sad. It is. It is. And that's uh, what I was talking on recently, you know, was just that frustration that I felt trying to voice my opinions, you know, during COVID and during all of the different things that everybody has taken so many different stances on that members of my own family were really quick to hear a decision that I was making and just turn completely against me and think that, you know, just assume that I was like backing the, the, the opponent that they hate or, you know, that kind of thing. I'm burnt out on it. And I love that you took the opportunity to kind of do something that you maybe were quote unquote, like against or something that you disagree with and embrace it and understand the other side a little bit more. You're, you're right. I think so many more people need to do that beyond just even hearing, um, listening to another person and listening to their side of the story because I truly do actively work to do that, but I'm finding there's very few environments where, um, you can openly share. So I kind of love that you just did that. Or I'm like, I wonder if I can do that in any areas of my life. Just yeah, well, embrace and, the other side. <laughs> yeah. And one practical tip for that. So as I mentioned that at the beginning, I used to be a political philosophy professor. So I used to study political rhetoric and how we talk to each other. And one of the most helpful tools that I learned, it was actually from a German philosopher named Jürgen Habermas, who has this incredibly dense, complicated theory that I won't even start unpacking here. But he says something that I think is really useful, which is that there's a difference between, let's call it open conversation and closed conversation. And the difference is this. Most of the time when we're talking about politics, we do it with an intent to win. So in other words, we are trying to show that our side is right, the other person's side is wrong. We're trying to show how we have the better argument, we have the better position, we have the better candidate, and just like win the debate, essentially. And I think there's a place for that. Like we need political debates, that's good. But we don't need to be debating all the time. So the alternative, if you wanna dabble in this more sort of, let's call it open way of talking about politics, is what he calls the intent to understand, or I might think of it as like the intent to really listen. And that, that just creates a whole different mindset. If you go into a political conversation thinking like, what I really want to do is just understand because then, you know, it, it, it can be a more friendly dialogue where, yeah, maybe it gets a little bit tense at certain points, but, but it's like, Hey, what I really want is just to understand here. I'm not trying to tell you you're wrong or your facts are bad or whatever. So right. that's kind of what I was up to. I was trying to figure out if I could actually do that. It was hard to do, but. Yeah, yeah. no, I love that. I, that was, um, like I said, those few, like years ago when I started kind of learning about self-help and I started, it was very spiritual and I love mm. the author Wayne Dyer. The, um, I love always him too. talked about. Yes. Oh yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, being with like his in-laws who strongly disagreed with his beliefs and he would just hear them and listen and say, oh, you might be right about that. Or thank you for sharing that. Even if he disagreed, um, unfortunately, and I, I'm like, I'm, I love the idea of continuing to build a world where we're more open to one another. But even when I, I think when I even try to be, I'll say, I just trying to understand like where you're coming from with this. I think so many people think, I mean, like 
so that I can, you know, I think they think I'm preparing to gear up and yeah. fight when really I'm just trying to, yeah. to hear and understand, um, yeah. which is a bummer. But, it is a bummer. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I do. I absolutely love that you did that. And I'm, I'm curious to learn more. So do you want to share a little bit about, I know you said you have a book coming out next month. Do you want to remind us what it's called? Um, if people want to dive in, cause I definitely want to dive in to hear how those experiences went for you. Yeah. The book's called open living with an expansive mind in a distracted world. And it comes out February 13th. And, um, best way to learn about it is probably just my website, nateklemp.com. Klemp is K-L-E-M-P. Um, I'm also on Instagram, so you can find me there, but, uh, yeah, I, it's, it, it was quite an adventure. And I, I think for me, this is a really, a, a deeply personal project to figure out if, if for all of us, if there's a way to just spend a little bit less time caught in the grip of various compulsions and addictions and animosity toward each other and spend a little bit more time feeling more connected to each other, feeling more connected to the present moment, to our own minds, to our emotions, to our thoughts. Um, and I, I feel like it's a very idealistic utopian vision, but I'm, I think it's possible. I think we can do this. And I think when we do it, it really can change the world. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, thanks for being part of the, the movement to make it happen. Take us one step closer. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on the show. It's been so fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, and if anybody wants to check out the book, I'll make sure to have all of those links in the show notes below. Hey again, thanks so much for hanging out with me today on the Unstuffed podcast. It means so much that you chose to carve out some of your precious time just to hang out with me. If you aren't quite ready for our time to end, head to the show notes where you can grab my free declutter checklist, join my newsletter subscription, and connect with me on some of your favorite social platforms. Sending you so much love until next time.